the Bible reading tonight is from Acts chapter 8, uh, from verse 1 to verse 25. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After that, um, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Well, friends, if you've got a Bible, would you leave it open there to Acts chapter 8 or a device? That'd be great too. And um, let me just make a quick announcement. Uh, next Sunday in the morning service, 9.30 a.m., uh, we're going to be baptizing our friend Luke Morris. If you know Luke, he plays bass here at 6 p.m., occasionally married to Kyra, who works in the church uh, as the children's worker. Married to, sorry, what did I say? Scratch that. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to be here next Sunday morning for Luke's baptism, if you know Luke, then uh, please do come along 9.30 and uh, support him in that way. Why don't we start again and I'll pray. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have such free access to it. And thank you that as we read it, you are speaking. So please speak to us to now. 
uh, guide us by your Holy Spirit towards the truth? And would you soften our hearts so that we would believe and obey the things that we are learning tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I, I think that on paper, every church would say that they want to be a welcoming church. And in fact, if you go to our church website, that'll be like the first thing on our church website. It'll tell you, we're a welcoming family in w, in Wollongong, something like that. Everybody wants to be a welcoming church, right? Yeah? So I should be seeing more nods than I'm seeing right now. Yeah, good. We agree. That's an important thing. Now, my answer to that question, that discussion question before, I think if you ask the average person on the street what they think about the church, most of, most people are going to tell you, well, the church is a club for the self-righteous. Uh, the church are a bunch of xenophobic people. They're insular. They're not interested in people who are different from them. They are closed off and they're offensive to those who are outside. Something of that kind of nature. Anyway, I think the point that most people would make is that Christians are generally not as loving, not as inclusive as the Jesus that we claim to follow was. They know that he was the friend of sinners and they say, well, Christians, they, they don't seem to treat sinners the same way. What's that about? Not living up to their, their saviour's words. I think that's the general opinion of the public when it comes to the church. Uh, this week, probably like many of you, I enjoyed reading lots of stories and anecdotes that were coming out about the life of Queen Elizabeth. There were some really wonderful ones that I read this week. Uh, my favourite story that I, I heard this week was about the state opening of Parliament, which is an event that happens uh, in England every year where the three branches, if you like, of British government, the House of Lords, House of Commons and the monarchy, all come together at the beginning of the legislative session and the Queen basically sort of like commissions the politicians to legislate on behalf of the people. You can tell it's a very kind of like formal, regal affair. The Queen gets all decked up in her full robes and and diamonds and you know rubies and all those kind of things. And uh, basically she arrives at Parliament and she walks down this thing called the Royal Gallery, which is lined with hundreds of her guards in their full uniform as well. And then she comes through the big doors into Parliament, takes a seat on the throne and kind of commissions it to kick off. Uh, the story that came out this week was that that tradition actually had to be tweaked a few years ago because the Queen was getting too old and too frail and uh, she could no longer climb the staircase that led into the Royal Gallery that led into the Parliament. And so for the first time ever, the Queen had to get in the lift to go up to the Royal Gallery to then do the procession. The first year that that ever happened, the elevator operator made a mistake and pressed for the wrong floor. And so there's the Queen and the elevator operator and her guard standing in this little, little elevator and the doors open and they're not on the floor to the Royal Gallery, they're on the maintenance floor in Parliament. And standing in front of them is a little cleaning lady named Alice pushing a cart who just walks in. Head down, as she's done hundreds of times before, not realising that she has pinned the Queen of England against the back wall of the elevator. And eventually she, she notices that she's not alone in this elevator and she looks around, sees the guard, sees the elevator operator, sees Her Majesty behind her and lets out an expletive that's really not fit for royalty. <laughs> There's a very awkward silence. Everyone's thinking, what is going to happen? And the silence is broken by the Queen's uncontrollable laughter. The Queen thought it was hilarious. And that laughter was then followed by a remarkable invitation. The Queen instructed the elevator operator, rather than opening the doors again and letting Alice out, to go to the right floor. And so everybody, as they waited there and the doors opened, out strode the Queen in all her regalia, so shoulder to shoulder with Alice the cleaning lady, and they processed together through the Royal Gallery. 
Alice had no business being there. She was undeserving. She was an unlikely person to be in such a privileged position. But it actually gets better than that because Alice and the Queen became friends. And every year, Queen Elizabeth would invite Alice up to the, the palace to have high tea with her. I love that story. Alice has no right to claim a relationship with Queen Elizabeth, but she was welcomed anyway through a gracious invitation, despite being so undeserving and so unlikely. Uh, in Acts chapter 8 that we are reading today, this first half, we witness a defining moment in church history where some unlikely and unworthy outsiders are welcomed in and given a place of privilege amongst God's people. Uh, and it's even more shocking, I think, when we when we come to grips with this than the relationship between Queen Elizabeth and Alice, the cleaning lady. When we grasp what's going on here in Acts chapter 8, I think it actually transforms the way that we as a church think about welcoming people. There are two simple truths about the church that we're going to learn in this passage. The first truth is, is this, that all are welcome. That's what this passage is designed to show us. All are welcome. Uh, you can see that the passage uh, starts and uh, we're right in the thick of it because uh, remember last week, chapter 7, there's just been the, the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen, who's been stoned, and the church has started to mourn for him. They're burying him, but a persecution has broken out against them, kind of orchestrated by Saul. People are being scattered as this persecution takes place. Uh, in verse 3, we get told that Saul is rounding people up, going house to house, dragging them off to prison. This is a dire kind of time for the church. And you might read verse 3 there and think about what that would be like for those first Christians being arrested and rounded up for, for having faith in Jesus. And you would imagine what would come next. What would be the next verse after that? They're rounded up and dragged off and they're scattered. The ones who are scattered, what are they going to do? They're going to keep their head down, keep their mouth closed because they don't want to suffer the same fate as Stephen, do they? But no, that's actually the opposite of what happens as the Christians are scattered. They go there preaching the word, doing the very thing that Stephen has just been killed for, they keep doing. And now the word preach there, it says the Christians go preaching. Maybe that's an unhelpful idea for you. Maybe you, th you don't, please don't think what I'm doing now. That's not what the Christians then were doing, 30-minute monologues with PowerPoint slides and that sort of thing. He's simply saying that the Christians, everywhere they went, talked about Jesus, talked about the Jesus that they knew and what he'd done for them. And if you, if you were here at the start of the Acts series, you'll remember that Jesus had said that this was going to happen right back in chapter 1. He'd said that his gospel was going to be taken from Jerusalem all the way eventually to the ends of the earth. And so we're starting to see that happening here. However, you would never have predicted that this was the way it was going to go down, right? We would never have predicted that Jesus would use the death of Stephen and the persecution of his people to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. But, hey, that's God's plan. And I think we should take comfort in that because right off the bat, this is showing us that the gospel is not going to get stopped at the border. Uh, the gospel cannot be stamped out by human opposition. Uh, Jesus is still in control. He's still working out his plan no matter the circumstances, even when his people are hurting. And that's good news for us. 
We are told in, in verse 5, we're introduced to Philip, who you might remember all the way back from chapter 6. He was one of the first deacons in the church in Jerusalem. And he is one who is scattered and he goes down to Samaria, preaching, proclaiming the gospel there. Samaria is basically the region north of Judah and south of Galilee, so northern kind of area of Israel. And it's kind of stated matter-of-factly there in verse 5, he went down to the city in Samaria, proclaimed the Messiah there. That might not sound like a big deal, but actually this is a very big deal. And Luke wants us to really ping on this place name, Samaria. He mentions Samaria six times in these verses because, truth be told, the geography of this passage is the most shocking thing about it. Now, to understand why Philip going to Samaria was so significant, you have to know a little bit of the backstory of the Bible about who these Samaritans were. Uh, Samaria was originally part of the Jewish people. It was, uh, you know, what part of the, the, the tribes up there were part of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in Jewish history, after King Solomon kind of messed things up, there was a civil war in the nation, and the country split in half, and the northern tribes became Israel, uh, and their capital city was Samaria. The southern tribes became Judah, and Jerusalem was their capital. And all of the kind of the mainstream Jewish stuff was in the south of the country at that point. So the south had the kings in the line of David, had the temple in Jerusalem. It had a kind of an orthodox biblical faith, biblical lifestyle and ethics to some degree anyway. Whereas in the north, things went off the rail really quickly. Uh, under their first king, King Jeroboam, uh, he basically decided he didn't like his people traveling down to the temple in Jerusalem anymore because that was south of the border. And so he decided that he was going to set up a new temple of his own, or two temples to be precise. And, and in those temples, he thought it'd be a good idea to create some golden calves for his people to be worshipping, kind of like the Israelites did back in the book of Exodus when Aaron made the golden calves for the people to worship. He, Jeroboam thought, that's such a good idea. I'm going to do that twice, create two of them, one in each of my temples. And from that point on, he starts to set up this basically knockoff version of the Jewish faith. He creates his own priesthood, not from the tribe of Levi, but just from whoever. He sets up his own religious festivals. He basically takes bits of Judaism and guts it and puts it in his own image. And the people in the south, the faithful Jews, they were really offended by this, understandably so. But it wasn't just them who was offended by this and who was upset over it. God had a problem with what Jeroboam was doing in the north. And so in 722 BC, he sends the nation of Assyria to come in, wipe them out, and take off the northerners into exile in the country of Assyria. And from that point on, the whole northern region there, that place of Samaria, was just this kind of melting pot as Assyrians poured in and brought their religion and their culture, and it just kind of got assimilated with this dodgy knockoff Judaism in the north as well. And so for hundreds of years by the time of Jesus, there had been this kind of open hostility, this massive divide between the Samaritans in the north and the Israelites in the south. The, the Israelites thought Samaritans were half-breeds. They thought they were dogs. They were reviled and hated. Uh, if you had permission as a Jew to spit on a Samaritan if you saw one. That's the kind of relationship that they had. And if you, if you asked a Jewish person, they would tell you that a Samaritan was beyond the mercy of God. They were too far gone. Now, that's the background. It's hard for us, some thousands of years later, to really kind of get a parallel for that. I don't think there is a really good parallel in our kind of modern Australian society where there's been 
ethnic, cultural, religious divisions for hundreds of years and just real hatred between two groups in, in Australia. I don't think there is a parallel, but perhaps this would help. Have a think about who it is that you think would be the last people on earth to become Christians. Does anyone come to mind? Who is it that would never darken the doorstep of a church? Can you think of any groups of people? Maybe your mind goes to uh, hardline Muslims. You think, man, they would never, ever become Christians. Just too hard, like not responsive to the gospel. Maybe that's who you think of. Or maybe you think <clears throat> least likely people to become Christians, maybe lobbyists for the LGBTQI community or something like that. Just so, so much antagonism towards the Christian community. They would never respond to Jesus. Or maybe you thought the other end of the spectrum, you thought, you know, the super wealthy and the elite of society, the, the Packers and the Murdochs of the place, those people are never going to become Christians because they've got everything they need. They don't need Jesus. Whoever it is that you imagine to be so far gone that they will never respond to Jesus, think of those people as we're reading about the Samaritans here because the shock factor will basically be the same as for the Jews. The gospel goes to these people, these enemies of the Jews. It crosses that frontier, and we get told in verse 12 that crowds of people believe and are baptized. <laughs> Basically, revival breaks out amongst this group of people. Can you believe it? The idolaters, the, the compromisers, the dogs, they are turning in repentance towards God. Hundreds of years of hostility and division just gets melted away by God's grace in this chapter as enemies become brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a remarkable thing that takes place here, a defining moment in church history. And if nothing else, what this teaches us is that there is nobody who is beyond the reach of the gospel, nobody that we might write off that God cannot reach. And so we should never, ever say to ourselves, man, you know, just that person in my life, I'm not going to bother anymore because they will never become a Christian. That person in my workplace who, who gives me grief about being a Christian or that family member who's in a gay relationship, you know, they will never, ever soften their heart towards Jesus. We should never say that because these verses prove there's always hope for all people. Your Muslim friends, your atheist housemate, your agnostic sister, your alcoholic colleague, your self-righteous teammate, they are not beyond the reach of God's mercy. And if God wants them, he will get them. Because he got you, didn't he? And me. God is, in fact, very, very good at making unlikely converts. He's been doing it for a long time. So, friends, don't give up on such people. But we can't overlook the shock factor here. It is really surprising that the Samaritans of all people actually respond to the good news of Jesus. And if you were a Jewish believer and you heard about this, you'd be thinking to yourself, you know, really? The Samaritans, they're, they're becoming Christians. Uh, it, God is going to welcome them into this Christian church thing that we've got going on too. Is that really what's going to happen? Are we really going to be joined together with those people? And I think because it was so hard to fathom, so hard to believe, basically this chapter is written to convince people that it's really true. That's, that's kind of the point behind it. Because did you notice there in, in verse 5 that Philip, when he goes down, he preaches the exact same message that was preached earlier in the book of Acts in Israel. He preaches, verse 5, the Messiah. It's the same message that 
Peter preached at Pentecost, that Jesus is the king, the one that God sent. And we're told, verse 6, that it's the same kind of miracles that are happening through Philip's ministry, exorcisms, large numbers of healings. Basically, the point is that the Samaritans didn't get a watered-down version of the gospel. They got the same real deal as the Israelites did, and they're responding to that too. And then in verse 14, something very peculiar happens. Maybe this stood out to you as we read through it. We're told that these believers, they've, they've repented, believed, been baptized, and yet, verse 14, we're told they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. There's been this kind of delay, and it's not until Peter and John, the apostles, come down from Jerusalem and lay hands on them that then they receive the Holy Spirit. And that is highly unusual. That's It's really peculiar because the pattern has been from the day of Pentecost onwards that the moment you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, that's what Peter preached at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit, Peter said. And that's what happened. They repented. They believed. They received the Holy Spirit. That's the normal pattern, in fact, everywhere in the Bible. Now, um, some Christian groups currently and throughout history have taught that you receive the Holy Spirit in two parts, two stages, if you like, that you get a first experience of the Spirit when you believe in Jesus, and then later on down the line you get a second experience where you're kind of filled up with what was left lacking at some later point. And if you haven't had that second experience of the Holy Spirit, well, you haven't really received the Holy Spirit in its fullness yet. Now, I want to say the Bible is quite clear on this, that actually every person who believes in Jesus receives the full Holy Spirit the moment that they believe. Uh, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul can say that if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. You can't be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing these days as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So the question is, why Why does it happen this way in Acts chapter 8? Why is there a delay here? Why does God choose to act differently at this point in time? Why wait until Peter and John come from Jerusalem before he pours out his spirit? Well, as I've said, I think it would be very hard for these Jewish background Christians to accept the Samaritans into their family. And so God, I think, really wants to leave no doubt, no possibility to say that these people are not real Christians. And so Peter and John are sent for. They are the, the top apostles, Jesus' inner circle from the church in Jerusalem. They would have been pretty hard to convince that this was really happening because Peter and John, they were just as prejudiced as any other Jew at the time. Uh, do you remember there's a little episode in John's gospel, uh, sorry, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, where John uh, has a chat with Jesus because John has heard that the Samaritans have closed their door to Jesus. The, the disciples are all passing through and the Samaritan villages don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And so John turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? That's John's attitude towards the Samaritans. He thinks the right thing to do is just to go all scorched earth on them. Jesus obviously rebukes him for that attitude. But now it's that same John, the Apostle John now, who has come to validate that, yes, these people that he hates, they really have saving faith. And he's the one who witnesses that, yes, they really receive the same Holy Spirit that all the Jewish believers have received as well. It's as if God is putting his stamp of approval on these believers right before the apostles' eyes and saying, yes, even them, they're welcome too. 
God goes to great lengths here to make sure that there are no divisions amongst his people. God does not want there to be this kind of mainstream Jewish church with the apostles and then this kind of breakaway Samaritan church up in the north like had happened in Samaria's past. God wants there to be one church, just one church for everyone, where even former enemies are welcomed and brought together for the glory of God. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, Paul, uh, the apostle, he, he meditates on this incredible fact that both Jew and Gentile, natural enemies, have been brought together now in the church. The dividing wall of hostility smashed down, one new humanity brought together. And he's meditating on this and, and speculating, I think, a little bit about why God has done this. Why has he made the church to be that such a diverse group of people? Surely it would have been easier for God to say, let the Samaritans have their church, let the Jews have theirs. It's going to be really difficult for them to get along if we put them all together. God doesn't do that, though. Why doesn't he do that? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. Paul is saying that the fact that we are all so different, we come from such a variety of backgrounds, and yet we are all united through Jesus, that is proof to the universe of how wise our God is. And in fact, the more diverse the group of people that God brings together, the more glory he gets the more it shows just what an incredible thing Jesus has done in bringing people like us together through the cross, bringing even former enemies together, Samaritans and Jews, now brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to say that for us at WBC, this presents an incredible opportunity for us, to, for us to demonstrate to the watching world <laughs> Just how wise and how glorious our God is. Because as Sam has already reminded us, we are a diverse group of people here at WBC. Uh, I discovered this week that the um, percentage of people in the Illawarra who come from an Anglo background, so white skin from England, Australia, uh, Ireland or Scotland, the percentage of people in the Illawarra who come from that background, 90%. We as a church, our percentage of Anglo background people is way lower than that. We are much, much more diverse, and we thank God for that. He has brought the nations to us here at WBC. Sam's already given you a little bit of a list of some of the, the nations that are represented in our church family. I'm going to one-up him. Let me read you a, just a selection. We have people in our church from Nigeria, Malaysia, Burma, China, Philippines, India, Sri Lanka, South Africa, Lebanon, Indonesia, Netherlands, Vietnam, Ghana, Hong Kong, Sudan, Malawi, Fiji, Iraq, Iran, America, Croatia, Italy, to name but a few. We are a bunch of people who would not have anything to do with each other were it not for Jesus. Uh, I read a book this year called Compelling Community by a guy called Jamie Dunlop. And uh, Jamie Dunlop argues that the diversity of the church is the grand witness to the gospel. That's his language. The grand witness to the truth of the gospel. 
however, he says that actually what, what often ends up happening in the church is that we gravitate towards relationships with people who are like us, people who we would be friends with even if we weren't already Christians, perhaps because we're in the same stage of life or we come from the same country or we do the same kind of work. And when our relationships in the church are like that, natural bonds of affection that we would have even if we weren't Christians, they actually don't show anything about the power of the gospel. But Dunlop argues that instead, if we pursue friendships, pursue relationships with people who we essentially have nothing in common with except for Jesus, well, that actually demonstrates the truth and the power of the gospel in a massive way. When when we love people who are radically different from us, it shows that God has made us one through Jesus, and God is glorified by that. So can I ask you tonight, friends, to to spend a little bit of time, if you're a regular here, reflecting on your relationships here at church? Are you friends only with people who are similar to you, similar age, similar cultural background, similar political views, similar education? If you are, then can I lovingly encourage you to start building friendships and connections with people who are different from you? Get to know somebody who's at least three decades up or down from where you are. Get to know somebody who grew up in a different country than you did. Those kinds of friendships, they're good for you to say nothing of that. They will sharpen and grow you as a Christian. But more importantly than that, they will testify to the watching world the power of what God has done through the gospel, bringing diverse people like us together and making us one in Christ. All are welcome in the church. God is clear about that. But as we're going to see in the rest of this passage briefly, there is here still a call to repentance. All are welcome, but second truth that we're going to learn, all must change. All must change. Uh, We get a little bit of an insight, I think, into the state of things in Samaria when we are introduced to Simon the sorcerer in verse 9. We read from verse 9 that Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and had amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, right? That's his message. Hello, my name's Simon. I'm great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God, right? So the Samaritans are up for this. He's this mesmerizing personality and they kind of go along with it. And I think it tells you a little bit that Simon is kind of an egomaniac and they're a little bit gullible here, but that's kind of how things were in Samaria, these kind of false teachers getting around and building followings for themselves. But it turns out that Simon is included in the gospel in verse 13. The gospel is preached, people are baptized as they believe, and even Simon himself believes and is baptized. Now, uh, if you want to listen to my opinion on whether or not Simon was actually a a converted Christian at this point, I'm not going to tell you tonight. You'll have to listen to the podcast later this week, and I'm going to plan to talk about that there. But either way, whether you might think Simon really has saving faith or something not quite saving faith, either way, this is good news, isn't it? This is great that someone like Simon is being welcomed into the church. Simon is unclean even by Sumerian standards. He's, he's like lowest rung on the ladder. If you saw someone as well kind of going around with Simon's kind of an attitude, saying, hello, my name is Mark. Have you heard about how great I am? I, I don't think you would be very quick to want to welcome such a person into the church, right? You'd be like, oh, maybe there's a church down the road. Maybe you could go down there. But the Samaritans 
they're quick to welcome Simon. There's a place for an ex-egomaniac sorcerer in the church. He's welcome too. But we read that when the Holy Spirit comes, Simon sees what's going on with the apostles Peter and John. He thinks to himself, well, they've they've got better magic than I've even got. And so he offers to pay for the ability, basically, to distribute the Holy Spirit. In other words, he thinks, I still want to be great, but now I'll just be great through this Christian thing. I'll get their power and I'll say goodbye to my old power. Now, I just want to take a quick pause to make a comment about magic, sorcery kind of stuff in the Bible. Um, when the Bible talks about Simon being a sorcerer here, uh, it is not saying that Simon was like an illusionist, like we might think of, you know, magicians today on TV and that sort of thing, where it's all sleight of hand and clever camera angles and those sort of things. I think we're meant to understand that Simon is actually practicing real sorcery here. The Bible says that there is such a thing as real magic, which comes from real evil. Uh, you can see it actually in lots of places throughout the Bible. Perhaps think of uh, the book of Exodus where Pharaoh's magicians are able to turn their staffs into snakes. It's not a, a trick of sleight of hand. I think we're supposed to understand that was actually really demonic power behind those things. And, and as we listen to that and read about stuff like this with modern ears, we think, man, they must have been so gullible, right? We can see right through that. It's not real. You know, magic, we know that there's no such thing as magic like that. And so we dismiss the supernatural stuff like this, usually. I want to say to you, don't be so quick to dismiss this as 2,000-year-old people who are really gullible. If you're a Christian, you already believe in the supernatural in a far bigger and more significant way than this. If you're a Christian, you believe that somebody died and came back to life three days later. And so it's actually not that much of a stretch to believe in the supernatural in this kind of realm as well. So let's take this at face value, Simon practicing sorcery here. That, that is Simon's background. And he gets kind of, I don't know, half converted, but he's clearly still clinging to his old way of life. And he thinks, maybe I can upgrade my magic a bit. Maybe the apostles will give him the power to control the Holy Spirit. But he gets a very stern rebuke from Peter, doesn't he, in verse 20. May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Very strong warning. Peter is basically saying, to hell with your money, because that's where the impulse to do this has come from. And in a passage which I've said is all about welcome, maybe you find it surprising to see such a strong warning like this. Because our culture, I think, would agree with my first point tonight. Uh, They would agree with the first half of this passage, right? If we just said Christians should be more inclusive... Everyone would say, yeah, that's right. They should be. Christians have got a problem with that. They're not as inclusive as they should be. They should be welcoming everybody from every background, every kind of community, every lifestyle. And they're kind of right about that. Samaritans are welcome in the church. Sorcerers are welcome in the church. But there is a difference between the Bible's kind of inclusivism and our culture's kind of inclusivism. Because everyone is welcome, according to the Bible, but everyone is also called to repent and to change. Do you remember what Jesus said when he had that interaction with the woman who was caught in adultery back in John 8? He told her that he would not condemn her. But you know what he said next? Go now and leave your life of sin. There's a tension there, isn't there? Uh, There is on the one hand a welcome I will not condemn you. 
And yet there is also a warning. You must leave your life of sin. Leave your old way of life. So friends, do realize that Muslims can come to Jesus and be welcomed into his church. But you have to stop being a Muslim. You can't worship Allah anymore when you realize that Jesus is the one true God. Uh, Adulterers are welcome in the church. Jesus will not condemn you, but you have to stop being an adulterer. Uh, Racists, Jesus will not turn away racists. You are welcome too, but you cannot hang on to your hatred. I don't know everybody in this room, but my point is that you, regardless of your background, are welcomed by Jesus, but you must let go of your sin. The church is to be a place where absolutely anybody is welcome, but where everybody must change. There is a tension in that, and I think we have to do our best to kind of walk that line and be careful not to fall off that kind of tightrope to either side. There are two opposite dangers here, I think. On, on one side, we can make the mistake as a church of being too closed off. And I think this is the mistake that the church has historically made, of being too insular, too clicky, too opposed to outsiders, thinking that the church is you know, just for people like us, decent, respectable, middle-class people. Well, no, we mustn't make that mistake. We must welcome people who are different from us, just as God does, the unlikely and the undeserving ones, because God's glory is at stake. We must welcome. And yet we've got to be careful not to make the opposite error as well, of being inclusive in a way that our culture is inclusive, of saying anything goes, of being indifferent to sin. No, we must call one another to let go of our old lives, to change and to repent, to say goodbye to sin and to follow Jesus in holiness. There is a welcome and there is a warning. And so I do want to say, friends, that you don't have to be like us to be a Christian, but you do have to be becoming like your saviour Jesus to be a Christian. All are welcome, but all must change. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, you, you extend a welcome to us that we do not deserve. We know that we were dead in sins and transgressions, but that you reached down in love to us undeserving ones, us your enemies, and you made us alive with Christ. Thank you, Lord, for welcoming us into your family. Do you teach us to see other people the same way that, that you see us? Uh, teach us to welcome indiscriminately, uh, but to also be concerned for the honour of Jesus' name. Help us to be unashamed about calling one another to repent and to grow and to say goodbye to sin and to walk in newness of life. Pray that you would help our church to be one that holds these things in tension. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.